Congratulations. You set your clocks ahead. I'm so proud of you all. <laughs> or, yeah, thank God for our cell phones, right? <laughs> uh, we have been in a study of the book of Genesis now for the last several months. Uh, and in the last few uh, weeks of that, we've been getting to know this guy named Abraham and uh, his wife, Sarah, and their family, and we've been journeying with them and watching as they go, learning life lessons along with them. <clears throat> They've sort of become like friends and family to us. If you were here last week, you uh, heard Pastor Dave preach on Genesis 23 and 24, uh, and in that message, we went to Sarah's funeral. And at the ripe old age of 127, Sarah was laid to rest. And remember, he, he had to buy this uh, plot of land for her, and then they dedicated a grave area, and she was laid to rest. And there was a time of mourning and then a time of moving on. We saw, so that was just last week, right? As we open today, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 25. So go ahead and uh, do the uh, normal routine. Get your Bibles open to Genesis. First book of the, of the Bible is the book of Genesis. Go to Genesis 25, and as you're turning there, uh, let me just bring you up to speed on something. Last week was Sarah's funeral. That was 38 years ago, okay? As we begin chapter 25, it is 38 years after Sarah's death. All right? So for us, it's just been a week since we looked at the last chapter. But, but in real time, a lot has happened in four decades, right? A lot can happen in four decades. Amen? Amen. Have you noticed that in your life? Some of you have been around four decades. Uh, four decades ago, just to kind of give you some perspective, Jimmy Carter was president. Oh my God. <laughs> We don't need anybody's political views expressed. Wow, we're still booing poor President Carter 40 years later. Uh, he was president. The Bee Gees were at the top of the charts. What do you mean, yay? Oh, my gosh. I used to beat up people who listen to the Bee Gees. Are you kidding me? Um. The Lakers drafted a kid named Magic Johnson in 1979, 40 years ago, um, and the average price of a new car was $6,800, and gas had skyrocketed to 88 cents a gallon. So that's 40 years ago, and I was thinking about that. What's happened in four decades in my life? 40 years ago in my life, I was 14 years old. Um, my life was defined at that time by things like uh, alcoholism and anger and violence and lust. Those were kinds of the headlines of my life. Both of my parents were still living 40 years ago. In fact, all my grandparents were living 40 years ago. None of them are still with us today. Um, I had not yet met Jesus 40 years ago. Um, in fact, 
This September will be the 40th anniversary of my introduction to Christ. So this is right before I came to know Jesus. My life 40 years ago was at an all-time low. The only way you could have described my life was the number one hit song of 1979, Highway to Hell. That was my life. Today, though, is 40 years later. Today, there's transformation over my life. Today, the banner that I carry is the banner of Jesus Christ. Today, uh, you know, I'm celebrating my 30th year of leadership in this church. Today, I have kids of my own. Today, I have grandkids of my own that the generations have passed on. And instead of a line of brokenness and ungodliness and addiction and all of that stuff that marked my family up to this point, now we're looking into the third generation in my family in 40 years who know Jesus and who are bringing up their kids to know Jesus. A lot can happen in 40 years. And especially a lot can happen in 40 years if you walk with God. But some things, some things stay the same. And as we go along, you're going to see what I mean about that. So as we open chapter 25, Sarah is gone. Abraham is 175 years old. And his role as patriarch of this growing clan has now largely been passed on to his son, Isaac. Oh, and another thing. Um, somewhere along the line, Abraham got remarried. Did you know that? See, you got to show up. You learn stuff. Abraham got remarried. Chapter 25, verse 1. Now Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran and Jokshan and Medim and Midian and Ishbak and Shua. Jokshan became the father of Sheba and Dedan. And the sons of Dedan were Asherim and Latushim and Leumimim. Uh, apparently they spoke in tongues in those days. I don't know. Um, the sons of Midian were Ephah and Epher and Hanok and Abida and Elda. All these are the sons of Keturah. Now Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts while he was still living, and he sent them away from his son Isaac, eastward to the land of the east. These are all the years of Abraham's life that he lived, 175 years. So since the remarriage to this woman none of us have ever heard of, since that point, there's three generations there, okay? He's now 175 years old. He had Ishmael with Hagar he had Isaac with Sarah, and now he had these six sons with Keturah and however many daughters, because the daughters almost never get listed, uh, and their children and their children. And so what we have with Abraham at this point is this growing gigantic clan of people, which is interesting because that's exactly what God said back in chapter 12 was going to happen, right? It took a long time, but it happened. And so Abraham's lineage has gotten big. But after giving some gifts to these other sons, 
He gave his entire estate to Isaac because Isaac is the child of the promise. Verse 8, Abraham breathed his last and died in a ripe old age, and an old man satisfied with life, and he was gathered to his people. Then his sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Mechpelah, in the land of Ephron, the son of, Z- uh, the son of Zohar the Hittite facing Mamre. The field which Abraham purchased from the sons of Heth, there Abraham was buried with Sarah his wife. It came about after the death of Abraham that God blessed his son Isaac, and Isaac lived by Beer Lahai Roy. 175 years. Full life, right? And, and wouldn't, you, wouldn't you just love for God to speak this over you at the end of your life to be able to say they lived to a ripe old age and were satisfied? To be satisfied right? So, so somehow all these ups and downs, all these highs and lows, all these mistakes and sins, all these times of great faith, this whole time of wondering and confusion and, and coming back and asking God more questions and God reminding him and reminding him and reminding him of the promise until finally he experiences the promise. By the time he's an old man and he can look back and he has some perspective, he goes, I'm content. I'm satisfied. And he died and was gathered to his people. So when you have life like that, you have a memorial service. And so the word spreads to the region that there's going to be this great big memorial service for Abraham to honor this great man. And the people come from far and wide, and we're going to have this burial ceremony It had to be the largest funeral that region had ever seen. This man who was once a lone man that God called to follow him has now become exactly what God said he would become, a father of many nations. And the people are gathering to celebrate him and to celebrate what God has done. And the ceremony is about to begin. So I just want you to get the, the feel for this, right? Everybody's gathered. This is a you know, family reunion kind of setting, right? Because that's what happens when you have funerals. We don't bother to see each other when we're alive. Then somebody dies and we get all together, right? So the family reunion is happening and you're meeting uncles that you didn't know existed and cousins you never heard of and everybody's trying to figure out who belongs with whom and all that. And everybody's gathering together and everybody's got a story to tell about Abraham back in the day and everybody's been sort of milling around and now they're seating in the front for the family and then just hundreds, maybe thousands, maybe tens of thousands, I don't know, people gathered around to celebrate this memorial. And the pastor steps to the front, and as he clears his throat to begin, there's a disturbance in the back, some sort of a ruckus going on back there, some confusion. Everybody turns, Isaac and his family in the front row, turning back to see what's going on, and it's Ishmael and his clan. And they showed up. And we haven't heard from Ishmael in 60 years. And it wasn't a pretty sight when Ishmael left, right? Remember Isaac's birthday party? It was not a good situation. And he and his mother were run out, right? 
I, we didn't see Ishmael at Sarah's funeral. Why would he come? He hated her. She, she was the bane of his existence. We never heard anything from him. But it tells us here that Isaac and Ishmael together buried their father in this grave. Ishmael came to the funeral. And as far as we know, this is the first time anybody has seen him in some 60 years. But he came to honor his dad. And now his family is seated in the front over here. And you can imagine the awkwardness as Isaac leans forward and looks over and shakes his head. You can imagine the way that Ishmael glares back at him. All of this, Ishmael's thinking, is supposed to be mine. I'm the firstborn. And it's awkward. And I know I don't have to describe this to you because you have been to family events that were awkward, right? You, you have been to weddings where it's like, well, we can't have mom and dad sit together because they don't talk to each other and they are brought their new spouses or boyfriends or whatever and, every, and it's awkward and it's uncomfortable and you're just hoping to get through it and, and you notice the whispers and the way people glance at each other. I can only imagine this is happening on steroids at this thing. And Ishmael has the audacity to show up, and he's got to be mad. This is, this is a powder keg. And now everybody is seated. Verse 12. Now these are the records of the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's maid, bore to Abraham. And these are the names of the sons of Ishmael by their names in order of their birth. Nebaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, and Abdeel, and Mibsam, and Mishma, and Duma, and Masa, Hadad, and Tamar, and Jetur, and Nafish, and Kadima. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their villages and by their camps, twelve princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years, and he breathed his last and died. And was gathered to his people. And they settled from Havilah to Shur, which is east of Egypt, as one goes towards Assyria. He settled in defiance of all his relatives. He settles in defiance of all his relatives. Ishmael became the father of a great nation. Just as God said he would. Twelve tribes. Does that sound familiar? Isn't this interesting? Ishmael becomes the father of these 12 tribes who go on to be the Arab people, right? And so we have this uh, promise that we have what happens when man takes issues into his own hands, and now we have sort of a counterfeit of the blessing of Israel taking place as these 12 tribes are being raised up. And Ishmael becomes the father of this great nation, but don't miss verse 18. He lived in defiance of all of his brothers. They were sent to the east, and there was this uh, atmosphere of defiance between him and his brothers. There always was. Can you imagine the tension in that room that day? They show up for dad's funeral, and nobody's speaking to each other. No hugs. No handshakes, no 
heartfelt brother-to-brother talks. This is the last time they will ever see each other. Bitterness and animosity will exist between these two families for the rest of time. They, they never got along. Their kids never got along. Their kids' kids never got along. And I don't know if you've read the news lately, but um, they're still not getting along. All because of choices made by their father. And, and one of the things that is helpful when you, when you gather to mourn the loss of a loved one is that you get some sense of closure and you deal with things honestly. And if we're going to deal honestly with Abraham, we have a lot of wonderful things to say about him. But that dude as a father made some choices that his offspring had to live with. And they were in pain because of it. I wonder how many of us can relate to that. Feeling the effects of the choices made by our fathers. And Satan delights in that. He knows that the Bible describes God as father. It's it's the F word of the Bible for a lot of us. God is called Father again and again and again and again. When Jesus taught us to pray, he said, begin by saying, our Father, right? We have this picture of God as our Father, but there's a whole bunch of us who in real life have a picture of our earthly Father that we would just as soon forget. Now, I don't, <clears throat> I want to praise God for the great fathers because sometimes when we get into talking about this, we talk about all the bad fathers out there and all the scar tissue that we have. You know what? Some of you have been great fathers. Some of you had great fathers and I praise God for that. But at the same time, let's be honest and admit that there are a whole bunch of people that are dealing with a whole lot of scar tissue because of a father figure in their life and the way that they were disappointed or the way that they were mistreated or the way that they were abandoned or the way that they were abused or you fill in the blank. And a whole bunch of people I meet really struggle with this idea that God is my father and I'm supposed to trust him. And those two things don't add up in a lot of people's minds because a lot of us, when we think about our dads, all that pain comes bubbling up again. But there's more. So many of us, having been hurt by our fathers, have repeated that same cycle in our own families. And it goes generationally. Did I mention that the Jews and the Arabs are still fighting today? That's what happens. And because of this modeling that Isaac had witnessed, watch where this goes. Chapter 25, verse 19. Now these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren, and the Lord answered him, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her, and she said, if it is so, then why am I this way? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, 
and two peoples will be separated from your body, and one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. When her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. Now the first came forth red all over like a hairy garment, and they named him Esau. Afterward, his brother came forth with his hand holding on to Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was 60 years old when she gave birth to them. Now, Esau means red. He's given another name later, Edom. He's called by both names. They both mean red. And Isaac, uh, Jacob is given the name Jacob, which means supplanter. And I wanted to have a good understanding of that because um, I've heard a lot of different things about the meaning of the name of Jacob, but it says right here, one who supplants. And so I looked it up, and to supplant is to take another's position by force. I'm always amazed at the way these people are named, right? So, so Esau is named because he's red and hairy, and, and uh, they were going to call him Elmo. <laughs> but they went with Esau. And then uh, Jacob is, is named for what's going to happen in his life. And we're going to watch this unfold over the next few chapters. Now, from the beginning, Isaac favored Esau and Rebekah favored Jacob. Jacob and Esau started out at odds with one another. Now, Rebecca had been told by the older women, uh, you can sometimes feel the baby kicking, right? She said, this ain't kicking. The scripture says that while these boys were in the womb, they were throwing punches. Th these guys... You know, one of them's climbing up the umbilical cord and jumping down on the other one. They're choking each other out. These guys are fighting in the womb. And, and God says to her, yeah, they're fighting. There's two in your womb, and they're going to be two nations, and they're going to be at odds. What a wonderful thing for a mother to hear, right? But God says to her, the younger one is going to serve the older one. Very strange. Huh? The, the older one is going to serve the younger one. Thank you. Those of you who have heard me preach for enough years realize that about twice a sermon I need to be corrected. Um, the, uh, the older one is going to serve the younger one, which is the opposite of the way that you would expect it. So they're fighting in the, room, in the womb, but there's no indication in the passage that tells us that um, Isaac had any idea about what God had told Rebekah. He told Rebekah what would happen with these children. He told Rebekah she was going to have twins. He told Rebekah that it would be the younger one that would be uh, over the older one, right? So already she has an affinity to the younger one even before birth, right? And then Esau comes out, and Esau, as we talked about this a few weeks ago, Esau is a man's man. He is into fighting and hunting and archery and sports. He, you know, lettered in three sports and all of that kind of stuff. That's Esau. And Jacob 
is a stay-at-home type. And it says he, he liked to, to stay and be around the tent. Uh, we know that he loved to cook. He and his mom developed this very, very close relationship. And you know what? There's absolutely no problem with that. No problem with the fact that these boys were very different, that they lived their lives differently, that they had different interests and all that kind of stuff. There is no problem at all with the way Esau was wired by God and the way Jacob was wired by God. There is no problem at all with these boys. You know who the problem is with? Their parents. Because as this unfolds, we're going to find that their favoritism between the parents is absolutely obvious. Look, uh, look at verse 20. Uh, now, Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for game, and Rebekah loved Jacob. I mean, it doesn't even mention that Isaac has any care whatsoever for Jacob. And it, it does, I mean, it could say, you know, Isaac favored Esau over Jacob, although he loved them both. I'm not saying he didn't love Jacob. I'm saying it doesn't say he loved Jacob. It says he loved Esau. And it doesn't say that Rebekah loved Esau. It says she loves Jacob. And so from the beginning, the parents make a decision which one of their kids is going to be their favorite. And the results are devastating. Now, I don't know if any of you have any experience with sibling rivalry, yeah? Did some of you grow up with a sibling close enough in age that you know what this is all about, right? Uh, I grew up with a brother who's two years older than me, and you guys have been around long enough to have heard all the stories about our childhood growing up. I can just say this, to say it was a rivalry is the understatement of the century. For the most part, we hated each other. We fought all the time. We didn't even need to both be awake to be fighting. We only needed one. If one was awake, the other one could be punished. That was how we looked at it. And my favorite thing to do, he was two years older than me, but by the time I was about six or so, I was bigger than him. And, and I was always the bigger one, and he was always the smaller one. And I was mean, and I was horrible. And I used to torture him. And so my favorite thing to do was I would wrestle with him, get him down on the ground, get him in a scissor lock with my legs and squeeze until he didn't breathe and then he would pass out. And then I would leave him passed out in the living room and I would just get up and go into another room and do something else. And my poor mother would wander into the living room and see her dead son. And it was the greatest thing in the world to me. That was, that was my joy. So that was the way we treated one another. We fought all the time. So I have some sense of what sibling rivalry is all about. Um, but I will say this. When it came down to it, if you fought one of us, you had to fight both of us. That was the deal. So, you know, we could hate each other, but nobody else was allowed in on that. And, and that was kind of the way that I grew up. But, but these boys, they didn't have each other's backs. These, these guys are twins, and twins are supposed to be close, right? They're supposed to be this twin thing where they all, they're just, they're just one. But that was never the case for them. In fact, they were fighting in the womb, and when it came time to come out of the womb, Jacob, seeing that Esau was getting out first, was like, I ain't having that. And he's trying to pull him back in, and they come out together while he holds on to his brother's heel. 
They were at odds from the beginning. Now, fast forward to the teenage years. You can imagine what this relationship became. Esau has been out on a hunting trip because that's what he does. And he's been out on a hunting trip, and I don't know how long he's been gone. He's been gone a day, he's been gone two, but apparently it hasn't gone well because by the time he gets back, he is not only tired and worn out and sore, but he's hungry. He hasn't eaten. And however long he's been gone, he didn't get any food. And so he comes back and he's hungry, right? And we find in, as the story unfolds, that Jacob is cooking, because that's what Jacob does. And when Esau walks in, he's cooking. Verse 27, when the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the field, but Jacob was a peaceful man living in tents. Now Isaac loved Esau because he had a, a taste for game. Rebekah loved Jacob. When Jacob had cooked stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was famished. And Esau said to Jacob, please, let me have a swallow of that red stuff there, for I am famished. Therefore, his name was called Edom, red stuff again. But Jacob said, first, sell me your birthright. Okay, get the picture? Hey, these are two teenage boys. Esau comes in and goes, dude, give me some of that chili. I'm starving, right? And of course... Jacob looks at him and goes, how can I take advantage of this situation? Give me some of that food. I'm starving. Now, how many of you have had teenagers in the house? They're always starving, right? This was a huge problem in my house. If you said, I'm starving, you probably weren't going to get fed for a while. So we're always trying to teach our kids. There's a difference between I would like a cookie and I'm starving. And after I had spent enough time in third world countries and seen people who were actually starving, it just never set well with me when our kids would say, I'm starving. He comes in and he goes, I'm famished, dude. I'm starving. I've got to have some of that food. Now, was he starving? No, if he was starving, he would have been laying out in the dirt, shriveling up, right? He wasn't starving. He was a teenage boy. And teenage boys have two settings, eating and sleeping, he was starving, he said, right? So his brother goes, well, I'll tell you what, I'll give you some of this stew if you give me your birthright. Now, what's the birthright? The birthright is that the firstborn son receives a double portion of the inheritance from his father. So in this case, with two sons, uh, Esau would receive two-thirds of the inheritance and Jacob would receive one-third. On top of that, he becomes the head of the clan when his father passes on. So the birthright is hugely important. As it turns out in this family, this transaction that takes place in the kitchen right here is a multi-million dollar transaction. And Esau sells his birthright. It says he despised his birthright. He didn't care. He sells his birthright for a bowl of stew. And it was binding. Esau made a vow. And it would cost him dearly. It's a sad story if you're Esau. For Jacob, it's just the first in a long line of deceptions that he became known for. This is what characterizes his life. But make no mistake, Jacob got what he wanted. Now, he sells him his birthright. He gives him a stew. 
and the story ends. I want to take the time that I have left to just use this chapter as a platform to ask you to do something that is, that is probably one of the hardest things I've ever asked you to do. So I'm not, I'm not joking. I'm not pulling punches. I'm going to tell you right now. Where we go from here is I'm going to be asking you to do something that is going to be really, really difficult for you to do. Let me begin by just asking you a question. For you, who is it? Who is it for you that if he shows up to dad's funeral is going to get a glare? Who is it for you who did you wrong, took advantage of you in a time of vulnerability? Who is it for you that lied to you, led you astray, treated you as less than? Who is it for you that made promises and didn't keep them? In your life, who is it that ripped you off and left you bleeding? Who is it that when you hear their name, the hair in the back of your neck stands up and it brings back memories that you would much, much rather forget? Who is it that was in a position to bless you but instead took what was yours and left you wondering what happened? Who is it that you will not be hugging at the family reunion because of what they did to you back in the day? And as I alluded to earlier, for some of us, it's a father figure. Whether it's our actual father or someone who is in that kind of a role in our lives that should have been watching out for you, but instead turned their back, walked away, took advantage. For some, it might be a spouse who said, till death do us part, but what they really meant is until I changed my mind. Until somebody better comes along. Or, or a boss who, who required loyalty from you had gave you no loyalty in return. A business partner who figured out that there's a whole lot more money in it for him without you. For some, it's a stranger who made you a victim and then went on with his life thinking of you never again, but you can't stop thinking of him. Who was it for you? Who are you bitter at? Now, maybe you're thinking, I'm not bitter at anybody. I don't have an issue with anybody. I can't think of anybody that I'm bitter at. And to you, I say sincerely, congratulations. Because based on all the studies I've seen and 40 years of ministry experience, I could tell you, you're in the 5%. But for the other 95%, we got some scars. And we could become, oh, so bitter. What do you do when a relationship is broken because of sin? As it was in the case of Ishmael and Isaac, as it was in the case of Jacob and Esau, 
as it will continue to be in the cases of the offspring of Abraham as we continue our march toward chapter 50 of Genesis? What do we do when relationships are broken because of sin? I'm going to ask you to, to leave the first book of the Old Testament and turn to the first book of the New Testament. I want you to go to Matthew chapter 15, and as you're turning there, let me just tell you that there's this theme developing in the book of Matthew. It's really a theme developing in the ministry of Jesus. Every time he, he teaches, especially Matthew seems to hone in on it, but, but in the Sermon on the Mount, in chapter 5 of Matthew, Jesus had done this whole thing where he basically said, hey, if you come to worship God and there remember that there's someone who has something against you, leave your offering. Don't even present it as an offering of worship. Leave your offering and go back and make things right with that brother and then come back and bring your offering and worship God. And when Jesus said that, he was speaking in Jerusalem. And what that meant is there were people who took two to three day journeys to come to the temple to make their sacrifice. And he was saying, I don't care how long it took or how far you've come. If you're there to make an offering and you're here to worship God and you remember, and by the way, those are the times that you remember. As you begin to draw near to God and give him access to your heart, he'll show you what's going on in your life, right? And, and you there remember, he says, you know what? It's a two-day trip home. Go. Leave your sacrifice. When you've made it right with your brother, come back. It's as if God is saying, this bitterness that can build up between two people actually impedes our ability to worship him. Our ability to know him, our ability to serve him is impeded by the problem that we have with other people. So if there's somebody who has something against you, he says, go deal with it. Don't wait till next week. Don't wait till next month. Go deal with it. And then in Matthew chapter 6, we have the Lord's Prayer, right? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Or perhaps you learn, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. I mean, he has the audacity in the one time that he teaches us how to pray. He goes, when you pray and you get to the subject of forgiveness, here's what you need to know. Your willingness to forgive others is tied into your forgiveness from God. Forgive us our debts as we forgive those who have hurt us. Apparently, according to Jesus, this is pretty important. Then we get to Matthew chapter 18. And in Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 15, we pick it up. <clears throat> and here's what he says. If your brother sins, okay, so in chapter 5, it was your brother has something against you. Now in chapter 18, it's you who has something against your brother. Your brother has sinned, not you, your brother and, and that is to say, your fellow believer. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. If he does not listen to you, take one or two more witnesses with you that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, you're supposed to go again and again and again and again and again to make things right with your brother, even when it's his fault. 
And Peter asks this question. He goes, well, how many times should we forgive someone who keeps wronging us? Up to seven times, and Jesus goes, 70 times seven. It's a a number indicating infinity. Forgiveness is supposed to be the norm for us. How mean of God to make us forgive people who hurt us like that. How terrible it is. How can God expect us to let people off the hook like that? Let me try to help you understand in this last few minutes here what it is I think God's trying to say to us. Hand me this bag, please. So picture it like this, that each one of us has sort of a, a, a jar that represents our lives, right? And this is your jar. Now, what happens is that as we go through life, that jar gets filled up. There are people that come into our lives and they poison it, right? You don't like this pointing at you, do you? (laughs) There are people who come into our lives and their behavior poisons us, right? And it is as though we are the recipient of this poison that just gets sprayed into our lives, right? He hurt me. He abandoned me. She lied to me. And the poison just gets sprayed in. And and as we grow... As we get older, our lives just fill and fill and fill and fill and fill with poison. And as that poison continues to have its way in our lives, we become hardened in our hearts more and more. We we keep a record of all these things that have been done to us. And then what happens is the family reunion happens, right? And that uncle shows up. And you see his face, and you go, that scumbag, I can't believe he did that. <sighs> I can't believe that guy. And then, and then a few years go by, and, and you, you're just not as healthy as you used to be, right? But then somebody else comes along, and you're like, that's that business partner that ripped me off. And look at him, he's driving a Mercedes. Ah, how is this... And every time I run into one of these people and every time I'm reminded and every time I read in the Bible that God is my father, and I just keep drinking the poison. But my friends, that is not God's plan for you. You see... When Jesus comes into our lives, he brings with him the ability to cap this off. It's not as though it never happened. It's not as though you're going to forget that it ever happened, but it doesn't have to keep entering your system and poisoning your life. We need to put a cap on this. Because if we don't, we continue to be the ones who pay. So many times I've told somebody, you need to forgive this guy who hurt you. And they're like, it's not fair. Why should he be forgiven? I go, listen, he's not suffering for this. 
you are. The bitterness is destroying you, not the person who hurt you. And you just keep sipping that and you say, I have a right to be mad. I have every right to be mad. And I can't disagree. If you want to keep drinking poison, you have every right to do it. And, and I understand. But what I'm here to tell you is that Jesus Christ came to set you free. And poison is a bondage and it holds us. And we cannot experience life abundantly as long as we drink the poison. So what do we do? Two things I want you to know about forgiveness. One is forgiveness is not a feeling, it's a decision. It's so hard when somebody says, you need to forgive, and you go, but every time I think of them, I cry. My heart is broken. I can't just will myself to feel better. No one said you have to feel better. Forgiveness is when you erase the debt from your ledger and you say, I'm no longer going to live as though this debt is owed to me. I'm going to put a cap on the poison. I'm going to move on. You don't have to feel like forgiving to do it. In fact, when you do it, even though you don't feel like it, it's an act of worship and God smiles. And as you let go, what you realize is the one you let off the hook is who? You. And you get set free. Forgiveness is not a feeling, it's a decision. And here's the other thing, and we'll close. I'm not talking about forgetting. I'm talking about forgiving. You would have to be mentally ill to forget some of the things that you've been through in your life. You, you can't will yourself to forget things. They're in here. God never told you to forget. What he asks you to do is forgive, to stop holding people accountable. Now, when you forgive but you don't forget, guess what? That means you don't go to that uncle at the family reunion and trust him again, right? It means that you, that you don't go into business with that guy again and go, maybe it'll be different this time. You don't have to be an idiot to be a forgiver, right? But, but to forget, you'd have to be a moron, right? God's not asking that of you. What he's saying is, won't you please let me set you free? And it's as simple as a transaction between you and God. The person doesn't need to ask for forgiveness. They don't need to deserve forgiveness. Thank God you don't need to forget, deserve forgiveness to be forgiven. Amen? They don't need to deserve it. They don't need to ask for it. In fact, some of the people that still run our lives because we keep drinking the poison have been dead for decades. They're never going to ask you for forgiveness. And you're still on the hook. Jesus came to set you free. And forgiveness is the key to freedom. This story is going to unfold and you're going to see some dysfunctional family behavior for generations because this forgiveness thing never happened. Jesus came to set you free. Isn't it time you stop drinking the poison and let God bring healing into your life? Amen? Amen. Let's stand together and pray. Heavenly Father, in this day, we agree with you. When you say that whom the Son has set free is free indeed, we say amen. We agree, Father, that 
in you, we no longer have to walk in bondage. We agree that because of what you have done, forgiveness is possible. We look at your example, praying for the forgiveness of those who were murdering you. And we ask you, Jesus, make us more like you. Father, we ask you to to cleanse us of this poison that we've been drinking that has hardened our hearts. We ask you to soften us and, and give us joy again where there had become bitterness. Father, we ask you to plant new seeds in our hearts that bear good fruit, not this root of bitterness that destroys. Father, I pray for everybody here who, who right now is thinking of a real genuine hurt, a real genuine slight, a real person who hurt them. And I ask you, God, please, set us free. Help us to apply your word. Help us to trust you. Help us to be willing to forgive as an act of the will and yet to maintain the wisdom that we gained from going through the trial. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. 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 God bless.